Welcome to the ATS Respiratory Cell and Molecular Biology podcast on COVID-19 effects on early career professionals. This podcast is being sponsored by the Early Career Professionals Working Group and the RCMB Web Committee. Today we have with us Dr. Amanda Tatler, Assistant Professor in the Division of Respiratory Medicine at the University of Nottingham in the UK. Her research focuses on mechanisms of TGF-beta mediated tissue remodeling in the lung. Dr. Francesca Polverino, Associate Professor of Medicine at the University of Arizona College of Medicine. Her research focuses on the pathogenesis of chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. Dr. Marta Bueno, Assistant Professor of Medicine in the Division of Pulmonary Allergy and Critical Care Medicine at the University of Pittsburgh, Department of Medicine. And her research focuses on mechanisms involved in the increased vulnerability of the aged lung to um, develop fibrosis. Dr. Maria Basil, a fellow in the Division of Pulmonary Allergy and Critical Care Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine. Her research focuses on development and repair regeneration of the respiratory tract. Dr. Josh Englert, Assistant Professor of Medicine in the Division of Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine at The Ohio State University in Columbus. Uh, his research focuses on the mechanisms of lung injury and repair in ARDS. And Dr. Chris Pasco, Assistant Professor in the Department of Physiology and Pathophysiology at the University of Manitoba in the Children's Hospital Research Institute of Manitoba. His research focuses on the developmental origins of asthma. Thank you all for joining us today for this podcast. To start, I was thinking we could all go around and have everyone share um, how, how the COVID-19 surge this past year impacted your life. Um, were you pulled into the hospital to cover clinical work? Were you at home um, managing kids and Zoom? Or did your research, you know, how was your research affected? How did you shift um, as a result of the surge? Yeah, so when, I, when all this happened, um, I was spending just a minimum, a little percentage of my time in the clinic, I would say 10%, whereas the rest of my time was devoted to research. And I, will, I have to say the last time I was in clinic was uh, March 2020, because then I became pregnant and I was highly recommended not to see any patient after that. So I cannot speak for the people that are actually seeing patients. But my research was severely affected by that um, because my lab was uh, forced to shut down unless I started doing COVID-19 related research, which I really, I really disliked the idea at the beginning, but then it ended up being something good for me because I, you know, I started exploring the effect of cigarette smoke with COVID-19. But again, we had to go a lot of, uh, there were a lot of regulations that were imposed by the university including uh, facilitating people that were not feeling comfortable coming to work. They, you know, we were supposed to just let them stay home. Um, and, you know, I had a lot of people just staying at home because they didn't feel comfortable coming to work. So, of course, if you have a paper in review of you're about to submit a paper that delays a lot. And, um, you know, that, that really severely affected all my research operations, unless you want to work on COVID-19. So my story is a little bit different because my parents from Spain were here with me. So the beginning of March was a little bit different because we were, we knew it was coming. We knew it was coming because my sisters um, still live in Spain and my family still do. And they were like, okay, this is coming. You can, your, my parents are a certain age and said they're okay. They can stay with you. So we made a plan. So my parents can stay with us and we can, we're gonna then stay home 
um, work from home as much as we can. Mm -hmm. But everything changed. We went, they went through a mandatory evacuation because they were here visiting. So in the middle of March, like in two days, we, my sister worked for the, is a high ranked security government official. So before it was official, she called me and said, there is a mandatory evacuation coming. They have to come back. It doesn't matter what we know or what we want to do. They have to come back to Spain. So we spent two days trying to find a flight because there were not that many flights and trying to, you know, put everything together for them to come back. And that was, uh, and they ended leaving March 21st. I think we had, we didn't see like one or two cases here in Pittsburgh. I think there was like three, a hundred cases in the whole, in whole Pennsylvania. So it was not, here it was not big. And then yeah. as soon as they left, they left and they come to a country, we have 300 cases per day. No, sorry, 3,000 cases, cases per day. And, and we ended having, and then we got like a big surge for us was April. Yeah. So my, the beginning for me was very stressful because I have to deal with this all of these at the same time right. that I had to close the lab. Okay, and then the search, we were home. We have like two small kids. My husband is also um, a PI. He has to close, but like, you know, we managed to close everything before the big search, but that was just, it was crazy. How long was your lab closed? It was closed from March, from March uh, 20th, until um, June. So I think we started like June 6, something like that. But at like a 15% capacity, that means only one person would allow to go at the lab at the same time. We were not fully closed because under the essential business, we have a big animal colony. Right. So one of us, like we were taking turns to go and check on the animals. Yeah, Again, taking the animals was not, it was a huge issue because we were not, we would have to book a time, you know, mm -hmm. but yeah. we were able to maintain an animal colony somehow and then come back. Yeah, that was tough. We had similar, similar things. We had to have someone come in to, to manage the animal colonies, but that was about it. Yeah. And because of the regulations of the university, um, there were only two people. There was like my um, main technician and, and me personally, because postdocs we were not supposed to work under essential. They were not essential personnel. Yeah. And the and then the other person was pregnant, and we decided, you know, you are not supposed to do anything. Just stay home, be safe. Yeah. So we were taking turns. It was okay. I mean, for me, it was a good thing. It was my weekly two hours of yeah. my own you know I know my own thing by myself the animals don't talk back to you right they are very nice I remember thinking that too like the lab was a, an escape for yeah <laughs> from the chaos at home sorry maybe I'll go next um yeah we uh here in in Manitoba right at the beginning of the pandemic we shut down very quick very fast uh I was in a uh, hiring committee meeting on the Friday afternoon and, and we all turned our phones on and were told that the notified that the Manitoba, the University of Manitoba was closed starting Monday. So it was kind of mass exodus from the building and daycares closed shortly after that. So no research, 
uh, a 14 month old at home who needed care. My wife's work also shut down. So we were kind of balancing hour and a half to two hour shifts between watching the child and trying to get some work done. And then when he went down at night, continuing work as best we could. It was a lot of finishing papers because a lot of the grants that we were originally going to submit got postponed or outright canceled uh, if they weren't COVID related uh, from the government's perspective. So uh, everything kind of just ground to a halt and it was balancing between watching a toddler uh, and trying to get work done uh, as best you could. So I, I was very much the same. So early in March, but I was away in Portugal at the ERS Lung Science Conf Conference, just as cases were starting to climb in the UK. That was like the 5th to the 8th of March. And then after I got back, my baby, who was at the time nine months old, got sent home from nursery with a high temperature. So we were forced into a 14-day self-isolation. And just as that 14 days was coming to an end, on my birthday, on the 23rd of March, the UK government announced a nationwide lockdown. And just like that, everything shut down, childcare shut down. So as my isolation came to an end, we, we, all of our research activities were stopped um, unless we were working on COVID-19. So my long-term mentor, Gizzi Jenkins, set up the Nottingham COVID Research Group. So when my isolation period ended, I very quickly sort of started working on COVID research, but in the absence of childcare, it was really, really difficult. Um, so here in the UK to get childcare access during our lockdown, you were only entitled to get it if you were a key worker. So I wrote to my member of parliament who confirmed that working on COVID research would give me sort of key worker status, but the nursery was still only able to offer reduced hours. So it was very much juggling, going into the lab three days a week around looking after my two kids. And my husband was working from home, but again, that his, his company were a lot less flexible than an academic institution. So um, yeah, just lots and lots of weekend work, lots and lots of late evenings, working till one, one thirty in the morning, trying to pull in full-time hours around looking after two small children. Similar themes are already emerging. Yeah. I can go next. Uh, I, um, I actually had a, a fairly different experience. I am my third year fellowship, but did my clinical fellowship time this year. And um, 2020 was not a year to be a clinical fellow, but you know, here we are on the other side. Uh, I had my second baby um, at the end of February. And so I was actually out on maternity leave when everything shut down. And because of uh, the original plans for my returning to my clinical time was for my elderly mother-in-law to watch the newborn, I had to delay my return back um, by about 10 days until we basically, uh, my husband is also a physician and was at a hospital that was much more badly hit than my own. Um, so my husband, although he is not a pulmonary or critical care doc, and at this point, can barely call himself an internal medicine doc. He's a lung physiologist was taking care of COVID patients on their general medicine team, which was hilarious. But um, so we were both pulled to service. So we basically had a full-time nanny who never stopped coming, who basically potted with us per se. And except for when she developed dyspnea, fever, and a cough uh, for oh, 14 days, um, and we were all under pretty strict quarantine, uh, we kind of joke that although our lives are extraordinarily monotonous, 
nothing really changed. Uh, we still got up and went to work every day. My kids were still taken care of by the nanny. Obviously, my my older son wasn't going to school anymore. He was home with my nanny. And I think the biggest difference from a clinical fellow perspective was that uh, the end of my, I had front loaded all my critical care time. So before my baby was born, and that obviously didn't work out. Um, I did all critical care upon returning from COVID uh, because of COVID. So I, I missed out on a lot of pulmonary based rotations. And then I uh, was supposed to sort of back end my year with lighter rotations so that I could work on grants and stuff and ended up just sort of not doing that. Um, uh, although we've really calmed down here. So uh, my experience was a little different because I was in the clinic basically 100% of the time for most of our surge until basically three weeks ago when I started back in the lab. Great, maybe I'll go next. This is Josh. So I, I wear a couple of different hats here at Ohio State and each of those aspects of my professional life was affected a little bit differently. So um, my clinical time is primarily in the intensive care unit and we had a fairly kind of robust early surge and our medical center ended up opening several additional intensive care units and um, our faculty, many of them were pulled to, you know, staff some of these additional ICUs. And, um, you know, as others have alluded to, whenever anyone or their children got sick, you know, they were out in isolation. And so there was a, a big risk pool. And so even if you weren't on service, you know, you were either on service or kind of on risk. So, um, you know, there was a lot of additional uh, clinical time. And so in addition to that, uh, I'm the associate program director of our pulmonary and critical care medicine fellowship. So I spent a fair amount of time working with the other uh, program leaders to kind of coordinate the fellowship response. And they were, you know, like everything, just a lot of, you know, moving pieces. Uh, you know, we had to think about things we don't normally have to think about, like, do we pull our fellows off of elective rotation so they can kind of be at home in case someone gets sick? Or when do the fellows clinics get canceled? You know, what is telehealth? So I spend a fair amount of my time kind of uh, coordinating that. And then uh, in addition to that was kind of like everyone else trying to deal with uh, an abrupt stoppage in laboratory-based research, which, you know, was the case here as well. Uh, and so my lab, we had actually uh, just resubmitted an R01 proposal kind of in early March. And, you know, like all grant submissions, everything is kind of backburnered going, uh, you know, up until the grant submission and you plan for the weeks after you get the grant in to, you know, dig out and deal with all those revisions that are building up and experiments, IFO protocols. And, you know, instead that's kind of when the closure happened. And so, you know, we worked on finding things for ways for people to work remotely. We were, you know, taking laptop computers that were connected to thermocyclers. And that was like, you know, the technician's home laptop and trying to install Zoom or, you know, get the university to approve the purchase of a camera. <laughs> so you can, like little details like that. So uh, I think, oh yeah, like a, a lot of com common themes, you know, there were a lot of frustration and a lot of unknowns, just a lot of moving parts to, to deal with, so. Great, thanks. Um, you know, I think there were a lot of common themes that came up obviously between um, both the clinicals on the both the clinical side and on the research side. Um, and I think you guys all touched on challenges that you faced during this time. Um, I wanted to pose the question of, was there one thing that really sort of like helped you get by? One thing that either you 
planned or surprised you that was actually really key to you making it through the last six months? I can jump in here, Chris. Um, I think the, from the research and kind of knowing what was going on in those early days, federal government about how the closures were going, when we'd be able to get back into doing research, who was allowed back in, if you could get back in, what about grad students and summer students? What about money to help pay for people? Cause we, we had a, there was a, a mandate to continue paying everybody throughout the lockdown. And so there was a lot of concern among some of the new PIs that you know, we were using our startup or whatever grant funds we had to pay for somebody, but they weren't able to be in the lab to do anything. So where are we going to get kick support to kind of help through that? So that was that was very helpful for trying to take information from kind of these higher levels and bring it down to people who were trying to figure out how to get back in the lab. For me, from the academic was, side, how was the how was the information distributed? You said it was like an email or a town a hall, week, a weekly Zoom meeting we'd have. Yeah, um, we'd we we meet on Zoom. Uh, often my toddler would make an appearance because it would just be so that. He was just waking up from his nap, but it was very relaxed. And it was just uh, um, leadership at CRIM met with um, what they called incident command weekly. And they would relay that information. To, so every, every investigator was invest, invited to listen in. And I can't say that was the case for the university, uh, but certainly being part of that institute, um, I felt privileged being able to get that information firsthand. It kind of helped ease some of the concerns I had. For me, academically, we have a, a new PI's kind of Twitter group going on that uh, is a collection of probably half a dozen, six to eight different new PI's that uh, we communicate quite frequently daily about all the problems we're facing, everybody freaking out all at once that now nobody can get into the lab and what about my grad student and what about this grant and everybody kind of got kids and we're all sharing stories about that. So that helped. And then I think personally, my spouse and, and I, our family lives on the West coast of, of Canada and in BC. So we had nobody out here to help with childcare. So having uh, my spouse working from home as well, being able to kind of bounce back and forth childcare with her, being able to make sure that neither of us felt like we weren't getting our work done or we were overburdened with watching our, our, our son run around certainly helped. So we leaned on each other a lot in that moment because we didn't have anybody here when we were in lockdown. So we couldn't really, invite people over to the house so thanks anyone else want to pick that one up I'll, I'll jump in here um it's amanda um yeah so i think from speaking to other people who were didn't have the opportunity to to get involved or didn't get involved in covid research or even people non-academics who were very felt the whole lockdown period very isolating they were you know confined to their houses essentially apart from going out for essential things i felt quite privileged to be still working and still going into the lab. And there was such a small group of us working on the COVID project that we were so close knit and just to have some semblance of normality in this completely crazy time. And that the whole world just seemed like it was going topsy-turvy um, really helped me keep my feet on the ground. And I think that helped family life as well. So I, although nursery was reduced hours, my kids still got to go to nursery a little bit and it helped them. and. And I think having people around helped. Yeah, I think, you know, like I say, just 
feeling like we were doing something that mattered as well as cliches that, you know, we were working at such a fast paced moving research environment where every single day on Twitter, there were new papers, you know, it was just relentless trying to keep on top of things, but actually that also made it quite exciting in, in some ways. Um, I think uh, similar to what Chris said, uh, you know, I think our lab worked really hard to establish them some, we, uh, there was a bunch of COVID projects that were sort of early on getting involved in um, within the university. And I run a human lung pipeline here. And so that was obviously like trying to figure out how to get that back online was a huge push because distributing human lung got insanely more complicated um, once there was a, a terrifying respiratory illness. But I think like something that our lab did that really helped us all get through it even from home was like, we kept doing lab meetings uh, my PI would meet with the grad students once a week, the postdoc once a week, down to like our lab manager was scheduling like Zoom coffee hours for like the postdocs. And like, we would all get together and, you know, we would complain like, how, how much Daniel Tiger did you have to use to like get through the week? Um, you know, like, um, he's a great third parent, if anyone's wondering. Um, so, uh, and, but it kind of kept us like all regularly checking in, I think prevented anyone from really sort of feeling, we all kind of felt completely off the rails, but maybe totally wildly off the rails because it gave us all an opportunity to like, okay, at 9.30 on Thursdays, like all the postdocs get onto a Zoom call and we talk about science and we talk a little bit about our kids. And then we also meet with our PI on Tuesdays and, you know, we talk about science and how our projects are going and share ideas that stuff that normally would spontaneously happen in the day was trying to artificially make that happen over zoom was tough but actually kind of satisfying for us the beginning like for us before everybody was like panic shopping we knew yeah so we anticipated yeah we we were good we have like a good stock up so we were like make sure like again so we knew like okay we make a plan so in that sense we were expecting this i would i was not expecting how much it was it would affect my my head yeah i just i think going through all that dealing like the family side of it was very hard because my i have to think of it for example my sister was pregnant after dealing with rounds of ibf and that is when she gets pregnant and she delivered in the middle of the worst part of it in Spain. Yeah. I make a decision. My head was first. My own sanity was first. And then like making sure like all everybody was safe. The staff was safe. The students are safe because we had a ton of like we have three students graduating. Yeah. Uh, they couldn't like do a grad. So at least make sure that they were OK, that they were fine, that they were at home. Um, with their like they have quality time with their families checking on them so I make a priority everybody's safe and is sane and then yeah their stuff comes second and then stuff yeah comes well they were lucky to point. have you you know I think that's really that's you know that's that's good for the people around you yeah because I mean because I thought like that is what I want for me so that's what I want for them yeah and now what's coming I really don't know because yeah. I think that is going to have a big impact. Yeah. So this is Josh um, chime in and kind of echo to some degree what others have said. I think as chaotic and scary times as, as work was, especially in the very beginning of the pandemic, having the 
privilege of being able to continue working did, I think, provide some sense of normalcy, you know, even if it is on the front lines of the pandemic. And you know, it's frustrating as some of troubleshooting all these issues and can be, I do, I also agree that there's kind of this, there's something calming about being able to, you know, try to wade through those problems and, and address those issues. And it, it gives you the sense that, um, things are somewhat normal because we're always, as investigators and clinicians, we're always kind of troubleshooting and trying to solve problems. I would say the other thing that was really helpful uh, from my standpoint was, you know, our leadership here in the division uh, at OSU was really great about, we also had regular calls. We had kind of daily clinical calls initially, and then there were more research focused calls, but you know, the leadership of our division was very transparent. And, you know, there were a lot of difficult decisions to be made, uh, who, who covers what and, you know, what can happen and what can't. And the fact that that was done in a very transparent way, I think, uh, you know, made a, a challenging situation, you know, more tolerable. And then for me, you know, at home, um, so I have uh, three young boys at home and um, I'm very fortunate that my wife is, is home with them. And, you know, she, before she was home with them, she was a teacher, which was great because, it turns out that I'm really bad at teaching elementary school age children. And uh, I've recently discovered that sixth grade math is uh, not my forte. So, uh, you know, having a partner who is so supportive and uh, able to kind of help me try to be uh, at least a little bit helpful when I'm not at work was very helpful. This was my attending when I was an intern, and I can say you were much better at teaching ventilators than apparently you are in sixth grade math. Yeah, it's surprising. Those fractions are tricky. <laughs> I was going to say in my case, I mean, I have, I, I'm, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. It was as bad as it sounds. There is nothing that made it better. My university leadership has been really bad in providing guidelines and uh, all the regulations that we're providing were kind of, uh, you know, it, it would, they were not, not clear. Luckily, I work within a center called Asthma, Asthma Research Center where we have, let's say, our own little small regulation. But still, I mean, everything was really bad. And uh, I'm just blessed because I have really hardworking lab members that were showing up to work even if uh, they had the chance not to. And that is the only thing that probably made everything better. But all the rest and the way the university handled the whole thing was really bad. So a lot of themes um, from everybody about communication, about connection, about you know finding your 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 group, whether it's on you know co-PIs on Twitter, whether it's lab members, um, whether it's colleagues, family that really helps support all of us um, through through this time. Um, I want to ask another question about what are you guys worried about, or are you worried about? the effect that this is gonna have on, on, on your careers. Um, we're all in that sort of junior to mid-level of academic you know, physician scientist tracks and trying to manage a lot and launch, launch careers. Do you think this is gonna set you, are you worried that this is gonna set you back? Do you think like, well, time will get back on track? <laughs> what do people think? If I want to be frank, I think my career is done because I'm not, no, it was very hard to get funded before. And now people are getting really mean. Yeah. In all, like in all sort of like, you submit a paper, the reviews are like, they will not even discuss it. And everybody's very, 
mean and angry right now for multiple things. Not only I think it's yeah. where we where we live right now. Right. I'm very I'm not very optimistic. I think this is it because like where we are right now. And it's gonna like I think we're gonna lose a whole generation of for sure PhDs, like PhDs in 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 um, anything translational science, I think they are lost because you cannot, like, I cannot rely on like, okay, I will go and do service right. and then I can pick up. I cannot. Right. That's it. Or that's it. Well, I think that, you know, the science is going to suffer all around. Um, yeah, no, no. That's, those of like, us that are MDs just getting pulled into the hospital. No, that's what I'm saying. PhDs, like like the, a so, scientist, like yeah. the whole science thing, it's, that's it's at it. risk. Like yeah. everybody has to go back or then it's going to be 90% service and 10% science. So then that 10% science, you're not like, what are you going to do? That's what really scares me. Yeah. Well, I think in terms of papers right now, I don't know if you guys have ever tried to submit a paper in the last few months, like the, in order to get an answer from the journals, it takes much longer now. And uh, since my lab was mainly focused on COVID-19 research, even to publish something on COVID-19 is an absolute nightmare. Journals are getting very toxic. Reviewers of grants are getting very toxic about everything related to COVID-19. This is probably because so much rubbish has been published in the last couple, in the, in the first two months, like papers that have not been peer reviewed or have been peer reviewed very quickly because of course, you know, people need a data, but the consequence of that is that a lot of, a lot of bad science has been published. You know, we, we have the example of this Lancet and uh, New England paper that were even retracted. So as a consequence now to publish something on COVID-19 or to get a grant of COVID-19 is really hard. And even to publish a regular paper, you have to stand in line of all this paper on COVID-19 and are even, even now are submitted and take a long time to be reviewed and to be scored. Chris here, um, I, luckily at the time, I don't think it was, I didn't think it was fortunate, but I wasn't one of the people who could get back into the lab because I didn't have any COVID research and I didn't have any intentions of diving in because I was just, I had just gotten a couple of grants to explore other things and I didn't feel I could have another thing on my plate. So I had shifted uh, under some great mentorship to really trying to push papers out the door, things that had been stuck in the pipeline that I hadn't gotten to because of a million other reasons. Uh, and so within the first month, we'd written up a plan to kind of just push these papers that we had all the data, we just needed to write them and, and get them out the door. And so luckily, we we got into that pipeline, I think, early and, and didn't have to wait too long in line. Uh, but um, so it was able to be productive, which helped. And I think it might have helped offset some of the other problems that, that are coming up, like funding uh, and, and getting, getting students into the lab, uh, which has been... Um, tremendously difficult because in Winnipeg we rely quite heavily on on international students from from all over uh, the world and they can't get here they can't arrive and I've had to have students withdraw from programs because they just can't wait or defer enrollment and then trying to find local students who are willing to do research is difficult because those students have also had their careers hit pause and they don't yet know what they're going to do so Funding students was difficult uh, and having funding opportunities either delayed or outright canceled was problematic. So I think as far as federal funding, everything should be okay, but it's really those, at least for in, in Manitoba and in Canada, those 
non-for-profit charity organizations that fund a lot of those small grants to kind of get you your, your seed money to get some, some results for, for the larger tri-agency council grants, they're drying up and they're drying up fast. Um, and I don't know how that'll help, what, what'll change next year if we're out of this pandemic, how, how those uh, organizations are gonna be able to cope with that. Yeah, I'm the same. So uh, Amanda again here. So in terms of uh, funding is the biggest challenge, I think that um, I personally am facing. Um, so a lot of our uh, funding streams that are available to my stage of career here in the UK rely on some form of institutional support. And um, with uh, certainly for the University of Nottingham, but a lot of UK um, universities, they rely on international students for a lot of their income. And with the worry and fear that they wouldn't come they, they just closed down all of their fun you know it was it was difficult to even buy things on a research project that you needed to do the research project never mind get them to commit to um giving some money if an award was funded so i wrote quite early on in the in our pandemic lockdown a, a seven-year fellowship that the university really liked but our school of medicine just decided they didn't have the funds to put in the, the, the support that was needed for me to actually submit the application. Um, so I had to not submit that. Um, and then again, recently I've um, tried to apply for something else that required, they, the funding organization would have given two years of a PhD studentship and I just required the third year um, from our School of Medicine. And again, they just completely frozen the entire internal um, funding stream for uh, postgraduate students. So I, I think if you're an established senior researcher where you have lots and lots of big grants and you can kind of swallow or you can add in support from maybe some of your other grants, it's in my opinion, not quite as tough, but when you're at, at this stage of your career, when you really just need, um, you don't have huge amounts of money to support students in that way. It's it's almost impossible, and and certainly here in the UK, the institutions just don't they they say they don't have the money to 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 put into even applications. So um, yeah, I don't know where my next pot of money is going to come from at the moment. I think the other thing I worry about is, and I don't I like I might be a little bit junior for this to be the issue, but. We've seen a shift in um, the amount of papers coming out with first authors and senior authors between men and women. There's already sort of a noted disparity during this phase. And I know just in, in my lab, just amongst the postdocs, all of us have kids and it actually, you know, ironically enough, it's the one postdoc who has two kids, um, who's a man has had the hardest time finding childcare and he's had to go down to, he basically now that we're up and running here at Penn is working two days a week and a weekend day. And that's to accommodate his wife keeping her job because even without childcare fees, they still can't afford to lose two jobs because they have a house and yada, yada. Um, but you know, like my ability to transition to the next phase of my career completely hinges upon my nanny coming to work and you can't get nannies anymore and you can't get au pairs. And if my nanny's like, you know what, like working for two high risk positions, it's too much for me. I quit. Like that's within her right. And I wouldn't have a lot of options at this point, but to stay home, which would be not a good fit for me. But, um, you know, I mean, I love my kids and that's what I would have to do. But I think that there's also this like shifting burden of being able to work at home and taking care of the kids. And how does that burden fall in the two working household? And I think that it's not the immediate effects I worry about. It's when in five or seven years, 
when we're looking back at what is already a tricky pipeline for young scientists in general, young physician, young um, female scientists and young minority scientists. We know that this is going to affect those pipelines differentially and all drastically. And I worry in five or seven years, we're going to see that the work we've been trying to do to bolster these pipelines has been crushed by COVID. And I worry that we haven't seen enough reactionary evidence from our leading funding institutes saying F32s, you know, F32s are extended, extra tea time is going to be granted. Like how are the universities are, you know, are one thing, but at a place like Penn where our revenue system is built on the hospital and the hospital wasn't making any money, how are our national funding institutions going to come up and and support people who are in these transitional phases so that in seven years or five years, we're not looking at going so surprising that academic associate professorship is down. I just jump in here again, Chris speaking. So they've kind of hit, at least at CIHR and NSERC, they've kind of hit pause on the clock. Um, so until this is up, you're not running through your, what we classify you as an early investigator for early investigator research. And then the university level, they've hit pause as well. So we have had support there, but uh, supports one thing and how that'll be interpreted five years from now is another thing. Josh, did you want to pick up on that? Yeah, I, I, those are all, you know, really good points. I think, you know, one of the things in the U.S. that we think a lot about uh, that's so key for junior faculty is, um, you know, ESI status um, and how that affects. And, you know, in, in recent years, the NIH has made strides to, um, you know, extend that time period where you get preferential status for initial R01 submissions, you know, to in include time, um, you know, away from work or lab to, you know, begin a family um, or other kind of factors that prevented you from, uh, or took you away from work for a time being. I haven't heard anything to date about, you know, some sort of extension based on COVID-19, um, but it's certainly, you know, getting to Maria's point, um, is something that hopefully people are thinking about at a national level at, you know, not only NIH, but other funding organizations and institutions as well as they consider things like tenure clocks. And, you know, I know those, those can vary wildly between institutions and between different tracks. And, you know, some of them that are as short as, you know, five, six years or so. And if you lose, uh, who knows? I mean, this pandemic obviously isn't over yet, but to lose, one year out of that um, could be devastating in terms of ability to you know, hit whatever benchmarks you need to. So um, I think those are all really kind of astute points. And I, I hope that people who are much more important than I am at leading these institutions are, are thinking about that and, and considering those things. So along those lines, I wanted to, um, you know, I think several great ideas came up in terms of like things that would be helpful, um, things that have helped and would be helpful. To finish up, I wanted to say, like, if, you know, if you had, if, what would be your ask? You know, we've been talking about this a lot um, here in Boston is like, wh what do you ask for? What would help you get through? We're six months in, we're still in the pandemic. Um, we're all worried about the next year slash five to 10 years as we transition. Is there something that you could identify that would help yourself and jun other junior investigators um, have more likely chance of success. I know money came up, promotion, pause on the promotion status came up. Are there other things that, that we could appeal to leadership for that would, that would help? Universal childcare. <laughs> uh, I was gonna say for, for me, early on in the pandemic and with the threat of 
through lockdowns as, as our second wave started to evolve, the biggest thing that would have helped us, both my wife and myself, would have been child support. When our daycare shut down, there was nowhere to hire anybody. There was no support from the university. So support for child care, child care as an option would have certainly helped. And then I think kind of continued support for early career investigators in terms of um, trying to understand the impact of this on our trajectory and productivity and how we can try to mitigate that. Everybody's in the same boat. So it's not trying to make it a, you know, a sob story, but how do we mitigate that? And how do we communicate that five years down the road when, when the pandemic's in our hindsight and we look back at our CV and there's a year and a bit gap. Also, I will say if we, if the early career professional could be exempt from furlough or undergo a better, I mean, I don't know what happens in the other universities. I know that they impose furlough to pretty much everybody, but at least in young professional people, I know that the furlough is based on how much money you make, but if you, at least if you are newly a new recruit in a university, you shouldn't really undergo any furlough. I am under furlough right now, and I've been here for less than two years. And uh, so that means I'm, uh, you know, my salary is in a contract, and yet they give me a furlough, which it's pretty bad, especially if you recently joined the university. When I say recently, I say within like the last two or three years. And uh, I think, you know, the furlough program has been really bad, and the university should really try not to furlough its employees unless it's really, really necessary. And they've tried all the possible options. Because it looks like the furlough has been one of the first options that is considered by the universities. It should be really the last. Anyone else have any thoughts on, on, what, on, what, on what their ask would be? I think we need a, a leap of faith from, from the departments, from the, your school. Okay, I know there's no money. There's no income getting in, so there's nothing. But just a tiny bit of faith. We, we, we can get through together. But like, don't give up on us. Yeah, yeah that thing that yeah. they have to, okay, we have to trim the department because there's no income. So we know who's going to be trimmed. So that's, that's my fear. That's really, really my fear. That's a, yeah. the fears that a lot of, you know, our group is a bunch of sort of junior to mid-level yeah. scientists um, affiliated with the ATS, but I think it expands beyond. I think it affects like all the scientists in many it, different areas. Yeah. And, I, and I think this like open talks and discussions about the reality of it, because the reality is you cannot do childcare at home and work at the same time. I mean, you right. can, but then you don't sleep. And then the right. next day, your head is not clear. Yeah. And then two days after that, you are very mean with everybody. And that is like a yeah. tickling effect that, you know, spreads all around. And we are all sleep deprived. We are all very anxious. And that make us very mean people, not by choice, but because of the circumstances we are living in. And I think we need to just stop and you know look around recognize it yeah because yeah, you don't know yeah. you don't know my head and my sanity first and science second yeah i'm gonna stick with it i just yeah it takes it has it takes a toll on productivity no matter what no yeah. matter what yeah i think we've 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 touched on several of them funding 
childcare, better communications, and and maybe mentorship on how to get through the next. Any final thoughts uh, from anyone else on 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 how the last six months has gone? I think the scariest part is this is not over. I think this is the middle. Um, I can't speak for everywhere else, uh, but I I feel like in the U.S. When you first asked the question, I like smirked because my answer was wear a damn mask, but that's, <laughs> you're going to have to edit that out. Okay. Um, but if everyone could just wear a mask and, um, but uh, this is not over. And I think that um, from the leadership perspective, like the hospitals are up and running again, like we've reopened some of the labs, we're in modified blah, blah, blah. And so I think from the top, things feel normal um, is sometimes my perspective down here, but you know, I still don't have the, the full range of childcare. I still don't have a kid in school. I'm, you know, I'm still balancing things at home. I still don't have an option to bring in babysitters when we work weekends and things like that. And so things may be normal at the top, but at the bottom, even now, and things are going to get worse, I think, as we move into the winter, things are still very abnormal. And so even if the labs are up and running, like, I don't think me and my colleagues, uh, postdocs and um, fellows in our research time, I don't think we're operating back at our capacity. I'm glad that our surgery center is operating at capacity again, but that's not a reflection of my productivity. And so I think that, and I think that this is going to ebb and flow, and I think it's going to be a dark winter. And I think that they have to keep in mind that even when things are open, things aren't, um, the whole system has to be working. And, you know, just like, it's so stupid, but like my transportation to work is a disaster now. I live two miles away and have like basically no way to get to work. And I'm either walking two miles both way or taking a high risk public bus. And that's like anxiety broken. That's just like one minor example of how the hospital's working, but everyday life isn't. And I think it's gonna be months until that's sorted out, if not a year. That's not to be like a Debbie Downer, but it's gonna be great. I think it definitely, so um, we've just had a relatively normal summer after quite a big wave over the spring and, you know, life seemed to be getting back to normal and the labs were reopening and you could go to the shops and the parks again and stuff, but the UK is very much in, in the throes of the second wave now. Nottingham has the highest COVID rate in the entire UK um, and our restrictions are now coming back in. Um, we're not going into a full national lockdown yet, watch this space, um, but it is definitely here. Um, the hospitals are starting to get a lot more admissions. We have an increasing number of people on ventilators and it isn't over. And I think the entire world needs to be aware of that, but I think it, it's quite anxiety inducing knowing what's coming this time. Whereas the first time it happened so fast and we were all kind of just wondering what was going on. Whereas this time, it feels worse because we it, we know kind of how bad it, it could potentially get. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, this is Josh again. I, I completely agree with that kind of sense of unease. And obviously we're still, I think unfortunately, probably in the, the middle of all this. Uh, you know, at first, it's really the unknowns that I think lead to that anxiety. And, and at first, as scary as it was, it was solutions were somewhat easy, right? It was the questions like, how do I reuse this N95 without contaminating myself? Or do I have to take my shoes off? Is there COVID on my shoes? Like, do I need to like bring a second pair of shoes? Or, you know, and, and all of those things have kind of to some degree been sorted out, right? Like, I, I feel pretty good that I can 
take off PPE and keep myself safe. And I have a, a system for when I go home. But none of these bigger questions that everyone's kind of been alluding to about career development and, and childcare and all these, the, the really big hard questions are, are still left. And I, I think that leads to this kind of low level of persistent anxiety and I think it's hard. And, um, you know, I, I will say that gathering like this to kind of talk about it and hear about others' shared experiences, I think does provide you know, some level of comfort. And I think that's what people allude to when they have talked about what has gotten them through this is you know, being able to connect with others in one fashion or another, whether that's in meetings or phone calls or, you know, across a driveway, you know, with your neighbors, whatever it may be. I totally agree. I think everyone, you know, this in this job, we're already used to at least covering two jobs, whether it's clinical work and research. Now we're like working like five or six jobs and everyone's tired and, you know, exhausted and, and, and trying to keep up and trying to manage all these things you guys are talking about. But I want to thank everybody so much for participating in this podcast. Um, we're going to post it on the ATS uh, website, on the RCMB podcast website. And I know that a lot of people are in your same shoes and are going to, as Josh was saying, be very sort of comforted at, that they're not going through this alone, that a lot of these themes across different countries, different parts of the U.S. are very similar and people are feeling similar anxieties and, and, and reaching out to try to make connections and to try to um, support each other through this time. So thank you so much for taking the time to, um, to share today your feelings and thoughts. And um, I, everyone stay healthy and stay, stay well. All thank right. You. Thank you. Bye, everybody.